Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. The famed 1.5-mile track where the Coca-Cola 600 calls home was a vision of Olin Bruton Smith. He bought his first race car at age 17 and once claimed to have beat the likes of Buck Baker and Joe Weatherly in a dirt track race there in the mid-1940s. After receiving zero support from his mother concerning his own driving career, he turned his attention to promoting races instead of driving in them, beginning at a small track in Midland, North Carolina. More race promotions followed and by the mid-1950s, began thinking about building his own flagship speedway somewhere in the area instead of leasing them from those that hastily put them together at the center of fairgrounds and other attractions. After years of planning and working hard to secure funding, which was really hard to do in those days, Smith broke ground for his first track in late 1958, just north of Charlotte in Concord, North Carolina. He finally completed Charlotte Motor Speedway in June of 1960 at an estimated cost of $1.5 million. To add a little perspective to that number, that's about $14,470,000 in today's dollars. Wow, he was only 33 years old at the time. That's pretty impressive. Race driver Curtis Turner, a famed Virginia moonshiner and entrepreneur of his own right, helped promote the building of the track and was a key player helping get it into completion. Like so many early speedways of that era, financial problems plagued the track from the second the first shovel of dirt was turned. Tons of granite was discovered during construction and had to be removed, making costs skyrocket. Many setbacks occurred, such as four consecutive weeks of snowstorms in January of 1960, causing delay after delay. Simply put, it was a project too far along that was hemorrhaging money and no way to stop it. The track opened on June 19, 1960 to a sold-out crowd. Races in October of that year and two more NASCAR Grand National races in 1961 were considered successes, but all three events couldn't keep Smith from being forced to file bankruptcy in 1962. Judge J.B. Craven, turned the track and its horrendous debt over to local businessman Richard Howard. Under Howard's direction, the dark financial cloud was finally dissolved and paid in full in 1967. Smith moved to Illinois, eventually buying back majority shares of stock and regained control of the Speedway in 1975. That year, he hired Humpy Wheeler as his president and general manager and together, they eventually made the facility one of the greatest show places in all of auto racing. The drivers that have won the World 600 from 1960 until 1984 and the Coca-Cola 600 from 1985 until the present are simply a who's who's list of NASCAR's legendary icons we've all seen and been amazed by over six decades 
and some of NASCAR's greatest races. Since 1960, the 600 at Charlotte Motor Speedway has been a true cornerstone of NASCAR's prestigious Cup Series schedule. everyone, welcome to episode number 65 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I'm Jerry Bunkowski along with my good buddy Ben White, the, the pride and joy of, and I'm going to say this the right way, Salisbury, there North Carolina. Go. But you, you know what? It. You may say it's Salisbury, I still say it's Salisbury, just like the steak. I mean, yeah. we'll, we'll agree to disagree on this one, but you know, we have a lot of fun talking about that. Ben and I have, have a really good relationship about that. So I, I'll defer to Ben. I'm going to call it Salisbury throughout the the broadcast today so but you're doing good so far jerk (laughs) (laughs) well we are actually going to talk about salisbury but and i'll get to that in a minute but you know this is episode 65 of a lifetime in nascar podcast and it's also the podcast that is tied in to the biggest race of the year in terms of length and also one of the biggest races on the schedule regardless and that's the Coca-Cola 600. A lot of history with this race and also a lot of history with Charlotte Motor Speedway because that is the home and it's been the home of the 600 even going back to the uh, when they first started it back in 19, I believe it was 60 or 61. Yeah, 1960. With mm-hmm. the World 600, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got over what, 50, almost 60. No, actually, wait, six. What's my math here? 60. 62 years, yeah, 62 years of history about the 600-mile race, and it is the longest race on the NASCAR schedule. Now, we're going to get into Charlotte Motor Speedway in a second, but Ben came up with an incredible, an incredible bit of trivia. I mean, if you like to make bar bets, guarantee you will win this one hands down with anybody. I don't think anybody's going to know this one. Ben came up with a great story, and we're going to talk about Salisbury, North Carolina, because this plays into this whole thing. There actually would have been Charlotte Motor Speedway would have been in Salisbury instead of Charlotte. It almost happened uh, before uh, Bruton Smith and uh, everybody else built Charlotte Motor Speedway back uh, in the late 50s and it opened in, in 1960. Then I'm going to let you have your local civic pride there. I'm going to I'm going <laughs> okay. to call it Salisbury as much as I want to call You're it. You're doing good one. so far, man. You're doing really, really well. <laughs> Well, I'm just being the I'm being the Yankee that I am, but uh, with a little twang in my voice sometimes. But um, tell us the story about Salisbury Speedway, which would have been uh, or which had the plan was, uh, if you will, to have been the original version of Charlotte Motor Speedway. But it would have been in Salisbury, which had been, what, about 30 miles north of where the Charlotte Motor Speedway is today. Tell us about the story about that. Let's get to, let's go that way, because we have a lot to talk about Charlotte Motor Speedway. We've got a lot to talk about the Coca-Cola and 600, as well as its predecessor, the World 600. But let's start at the beginning. Tell us about what would have been Charlotte Motor Speedway North, if you want to call it that, okay. in Salisbury. Well, it's it's an interesting story, Jerry, and a lot of people don't realize that this is actually what could have been the birthplace of what should have been Salisbury Motor Speedway. Mm -hmm. But there were three letters involved, and this this tends to put a wrinkle in a lot of blankets when it comes to financial problems, and it's called (laughs) three letters, I-R-S. Uh-oh, (laughs) uh-oh, uh-oh. Yeah, and so what happened is this. 
there was a track that was built around 1931, 32, and that era had nothing really originally to do with auto racing. It was horse racing. Really? And a gentleman, yeah, a gentleman by the name of Walter McCandless, who was a resident of Salisbury, had made and lost several fortunes uh, doing various things, but he decided to build a fairground area there in Salisbury, where I'm from, actually. Right, right. And so it was a large mammoth fairground type thing. And as a part of that, he said, well, let's build a horse track because, you know, we're doing animals here and we've got a, a very festive type of uh, venue here. So let's do that. So he did. And so later in the game, this is, um, oh, and like I said, about 1932, 33. And then uh, sometime around 1940, he decided to add race cars or cars. Let's not call them race cars, cars. And ironically, this is something that I discovered in my research. There was a gentleman that we know very well who came to Salisbury and raced. This is long before NASCAR was formed, and he was one of the winners of one of these races. And guess who that particular person was? I'll give you one guess, two guesses, three guesses. Uh, I'll get it. In, I'll, let me get. Let me think. I'm going to say Richard Petty. No, it wasn't no, Richard Petty. No, wait a minute. No, because Richard Petty would have only been three years old at the time. Oh, wait a minute. What am I thinking? What am, no, <laughs> uh, Junior Johnson then? No, not quite. Actually, Bill France Sr. No. No, I'm telling you the truth. He won a race at Salisbury Speedway long before he decided to form NASCAR. When I say long before, he actually formed NASCAR officially on February 21st, 1948. So 1940, he actually won a race at Salisbury. Mm-hmm driving a, a car. So as it turns out, Bruton Smith, who was the founder of uh, Speedway Motorsports and built Charlotte Motor Speedway and, and Texas Motor Speedway and uh, Bristol, about Bristol. Las actually. Vegas Motor Speedway. Las Vegas <laughs> and various ones. Anything this, says Motor Speedway, but of course, it, right. he, didn't build, he didn't build Salisbury Motor Speedway. No, he didn't. He didn't. So as it turns out, he had leased this property from Mr. McCandless to run the particular car races in in 19, actually 1958. And this race was won by Lee Petty, which actually by winning the race in 1958, it was a NASCAR race. Then that iced the championship for Lee Petty that year. Uh, And it was in, in October of that year. And the only race that was run that year at Salisbury was that particular race that Lee Petty won. Mm-hmm. But the problem was that Mr. McCandless was having some very bad difficulties with the IRS. And so as it turned out, the track that was located on Highway 29 coming through Salisbury, and by the way, on a side note, this is before the interstates were built. So mm-hmm. the first year is going to Charlotte Motor Speedway. You'd have to travel uh, on uh, Highway 29 to get to the to the racetrack, which is a, a basically a two lane highway. Right. Very hard to get there as far as traffic concerns and such, especially if you had a sellout crowd at the speedway. But still is today. <laughs> yeah. So I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but so as it turns out, and and Bruton's uh, wise judgment, you might say, he said, "Well, you know, uh, it's one of those situations where I really probably need to back off of this." And I know where there's a tract of land about 25 to 30 miles down the road. 
that I can buy that and I can build something. I'll just call that Charlotte Motor Speedway and maybe I'll bypass the situation. Sadly, four days after Lee Petty won the race at Salisbury Speedway, Mr. McCandless passed away. Really? Wow. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And and as a as a part of that equation, of course, all of his assets and all the things that he owned was broken up. All of his all the things that he owned uh, was uh, broken up to satisfy the IRS debt. And and I think a lot of that was just the stress of having to uh, settle that uh, problem with the IRS. There's a beautiful home here in Salisbury that Mr. McCandless built that's still there uh, in the country club section of Salisbury, mm-hmm. but that's basically the story. And, and, the you know, Bruton, why, I guess wisely elected not to go in that direction because of some of the outer lying business problems that Mr. McCandless was having at the mm-hmm. time. And so he decided to go and build a Charlotte motor speedway, uh, down the road. And as it turned out, Bruton had his own problems building Charlotte because when they started constructing the track, they found that they had a huge amount of granite underneath where the track uh, was built. And they had to spend a lot of money, much more money than they thought they were going to have to, uh, coming in to dynamite all of that granite out from under the racetrack. And that was delay after delay after delay and a lot of money spent that they didn't really have. And it's, it's a, a, another side story to try to get that track built. And finally it was built uh, and opened and it opened June 19th, uh, 1960 for that first world 600. And, and then in 1961, they ran into some bankruptcy issues. So, I mean, it was just very, the first four or five years of the existence of Charlotte motor speed was very, very rough. And then as time went on, of course, it became solvent and uh, Bruton Smith did lose ownership of the track for a while and then came back and uh, gained possession of the track again and made it a huge success. But in the first beginning years of that racetrack, it was very, very rocky. Uh, I guess it's not a real good word to use, but uh, I never knew any of this. This is really interesting. No pun intended, but yeah, it was very, very difficult to, uh, to get that track off the ground in the first say five years, it was very hard because of all the expenses they ran into, uh, trying to build the track. Curtis Turner was a partner, uh, to Bruton Smith in the, in the very early years of it. And that caused a lot of problems. That's another thing we could get spent a whole nother year, uh, a whole another year, a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother uh, show on probably another year <laughs> on just trying to, to talk about the relationship between Bruton Smith and Curtis Turner. That was also, again, another bad choice of words, another Rocky relationship. <laughs> And, uh, boy, that was tough. And so, yeah, it was, it was the Charlotte Murray Speedway went through some very bad times in the first few years. It ultimately became one of the most successful racetracks on the circuit, but, you know, Bruton did was very smart in the fact he said, I'm going to start this off being a 600 mile race. And, and you got to think back to this Jerry too, those cars on those initial, uh, years, 60, 61, 62, it was a miracle that anybody finished right? because right. those were very true stock cars traveling at say, I don't know what the speeds, maybe 160, uh, 165 in those days, that was hard on those cars to do 600 miles, 400 laps in those days. Mm-hmm. 
and not they're just typical cars with uh you know maybe reinforced right front wheels and uh maybe a little bit of work done to the engines and that kind of thing but they were truly stock stock type cars they were not race cars right and so it was more of an endurance test than it was racing other other guys on the racetrack and uh so yeah it's it's been a tough race a long long time and then you did it in the middle of may at 100 degrees outside and boy it was tough on the fans and the drivers it really exactly. was well let me ask you this going you, you said something that I, i'm, I'm kind of curious when bruton and curtis and their partnership group built the speedway uh, that opened in 60 was the design of what we know today to be Charlotte Motor Speedway is that the same exact design I mean I know I know there's been changes in terms of like you know they added the road course and all that kind of stuff but I mean the actual 1.5 mile track is it the same today in in concept and design as it was back in 1960 when it opened yeah it is it's, it's exactly the same the problem they ran into in that first race though that they wanted so badly to get that first race off the ground on June 19th, 1960, was that they laid the the asphalt on there basically on June 16th and 17th of 1960, and it hadn't really cured that well. Mm-hmm. And so they ran into some pothole problems uh, in the track during, and again, very hot conditions in the middle of May or actually June that time, they right. moved it back to May, but say June, very hot conditions. And what was happening, the cars were running on the asphalt and created some potholes in the in the asphalt. And here's a side story of something that happened that year. Jack Smith was driving for uh, Bud Moore, Bud Moore Engineering, and a chunk of that came up and hit the gas tank. And J- J- uh, Jack Smith was very much out front, and uh, pretty well in command of the race. And then uh, a piece of this asphalt comes up into the gas tank and cuts a hole in the gas tank. Fortunately, it didn't create a problem as far as an explosion or anything. These are regular gas tanks. These are not fuel cells. Right, right, right. And so they didn't know what to do. So he ran one of his crew guys over to the men's restroom and got a bar of soap. And they put a bar of soap in in the hole of this gas tank, hoping it would hold. This true story. And it did hold for about 10 or 12 laps and it finally fell out and dissolved, I guess, from the gasoline. It didn't work. And so he, of course, went to the garage area. But uh, at the end of the day, a gentleman by the name of Joe Lee Johnson was the winner. No relation to Jimmy Johnson or Junior Johnson. Uh, He was from Tennessee. He won two victories, two races in the Cup Series or the Grand National Series. Uh, during his career, a very tall guy, like six, six, he ran a Chevrolet number 89 was his car number. And, uh, yeah, and he, he won the 600 that year, but it was more of an endurance race, uh, that year. And for many years in those first six or 18 years, it was more endurance than anything, because like I said before, those cars were just who could be who could was running at the end mm-hmm. uh, those cars were not race cars they were stock cars passenger cars and very little done to them to to help them get to the 400 mile 600 or excuse me 400 laps 600 mile distance right let me go back to one quick second and i'm, I'm going to ask this because i as i've told you in the past off the air um one of the things that i'd like to do is when i'm on the road i like to go visit 
locations where there used to be a racetrack. That'd be rich. Mm -hmm. Actually, that'd be a good title for a book. There used to be a racetrack here, you know? (laughs) I mean, yeah, where the oak tree used to be. Turn left where the oak tree used to be. So tell me, you know, a lot of fans, obviously, that are listening, they know the Charlotte and and Salisbury area. Where off of I-85 is or was the Salisbury Motor? I, I almost had it. Almost had it. Salisbury no, you're, Motor. You're, 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 you're bouncing back and forth on that. You're doing pretty good so far. Okay. You're about 50-50. Where, where about off of 85 was the Salisbury Motor Speedway located? I'm just kind of curious. Uh, okay. There is a, and I apologize for this. I can't, I can't remember the name of the company, but there is a company there that builds walls for homes like, uh modular homes i mm-hmm. believe mm-hmm. and i just can't think of the name of it that's the location uh it's about it's it's almost to china grove north carolina it's not quite into china grove so it's south it's, of salisbury then it's a little bit south of salisbury gotcha. but it's still in the Sal- salisbury you almost got me doing it salisbury <laughs> i'm trying i'm yeah, trying <laughs> yeah salisbury uh, uh city limits is still there right but uh, yes, yeah, on Highway 29, and it, you can look in the area where uh, there, you'll see some very old building Wilkesboro. They were in straightaways. You know, Wilkesboro has an uphill uh, backstretch and a downhill front stretch, where this track is exactly the same size as North Wilkesboro. And I'm sure that if Bruton had stayed there, he would have designed it. He would have spent money on it to to build it differently. Uh, to resemble what we have today, but the original cost of that track when it was done in 1932 was $150,000, according mm-hmm. to some records I found from Wal- Walter McCandless had put that money into it, which was uh, about the equivalent of a million dollars in those days. I mean, it was right. a lot of money that he had spent on it. And, but yeah, it was, uh, it, it was in that location and so if you're ever in the Salisbury area, if you just go on Highway 29 and there is a convenience store, gas store, gas station convenience store right beside of it and uh, easy to find. But you'll never find anything related to the racetrack now because that was a long time ago, many, many years ago, what, 62 years ago or something now. Nothing that you would ever find. Same thing with the track in Lexington. Actually, the track in Lexington is not far either. And and ironically, the very quick, I'm getting off the beaten path here. But the track in Lexington, I'm going to get this or not. But one of the uh, one of the off ramps of the interstate was actually exactly where the third and fourth turn was at the track in Lexington, if you can imagine. So now we're talking Lexington, North Carolina, right? Where we're right. 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 Well, yeah, but just, just a, a, a few miles, not exactly where Lex, where Richard Childress is. It's a few miles down from that. But ironically, if you wanted to say you drove on the Lexington racetrack, you could actually say you did <laughs> because <laughs> it's identical. Exactly. 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 Where that 34 turn was. Right where the Lexington track is. So some of these racetracks that you want to find, sadly, you're not going to find them unless you have documentation or some kind of uh, some way to know exactly where they were, because you won't, you won't be able to find them. Now the one in Salisbury though, you'll, you know exactly where you are because you can tell where the buildings are, where the the curved roofing and where the, the brick buildings were. Uh, or there that are still there and they're using those for storage and things like that. But that's, that's exactly where the track was. 
Or as yeah. I always say, you just you park your car, you roll down your window, and you just listen for the race for the race cars. You yeah. can hear them in the distance. Yeah, and you know what, Jerry? While we're talking, I'm so off the beaten path. Right. I know our, our fans will be okay with that. And because we're talking racing, it's so much fun to talk about this stuff. The other day, I went to North Wilkesboro Speedway for a press conference with our governor, Roy Cooper, and I did it through the Charlotte Motor Speedway because they're going to be opening uh, North Wilkesboro Speedway coming mm -hmm. up in August and October. Mm -hmm. And you, what you just said right there was so true for me because I was sitting in a seating area uh, on top of what was the old Victory Lane area. Mm -hmm. Sadly, the, the suite, so if you looked across the uh, the start finish line there at North Wilkesboro, but you were looking at the old suites and they're really badly dilapidated now. And the, and the Wilkesboro Speedway signs are very faded, but I heard that sort of feel. I mean, I felt that I sort of could still hear the cars and I could sort of feel the feeling of racing. And I could sort of remember the crowds you know what I mean? It was just, yep. you don't, you don't ever lose that. I mean, you never lose it. Right. Exactly. Right. But, but you know, Richard Childress did take governor Cooper out in a, in a pace car, a convertible. We were talking to him afterward. He said, you know what? So this track right now is, it feels so good. I mean, you could put 32 cars or something on it and you could race on it. And that amazes me because several years ago, Kevin Harvick tested a, a car when he was driving for Childress. He said exactly the same. I don't know what they did to it to make it run so well, but he said, even today, you really could drive a car on this thing and it felt so smooth, but back to our, what our show is, I just wanted to interject that what you said, made me think of that you do when you go to these old racetracks, you, and even, even if you don't see stands, you feel that I remember going to Lakewood speedway in Atlanta and Lakewood, and this is uh, probably about eight or 10 years ago, but Lakewood was located right in the middle of Atlanta. Really? And yes. And, and you, and Lakewood is a track that they had a large lake in the middle of the infield. I mean, you couldn't even put cars in it because the lake was so big and had oak trees in the middle of it. And when they raced Ergo, on it, Lake Wood, there you go. Right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And the stand, the concrete sands are still there. And I couldn't, I couldn't tell you how to get to it. Somebody would have to help me tell you how to get to it. But if you had a GPS, you could get to it. Right. But, but the stands are still there. And of course the water's not, or the trees aren't, but it's, it was just, it's like, you could feel it there too. I don't know yeah. what it is about going to these old racetracks, but you can still feel what was there once. It's the aura. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. really interesting. That's right. I mean, you know, a couple of times, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, we're caught going back probably 15 years or so. Um, a good buddy of mine, and, and I, I think you knew him. Uh, his name was Louis Brewster. He was the yeah. longtime sports editor out in, uh, uh, oh gosh, San Bernardino, Ontario, you know, uh, several papers in that area. Now, Louis has sadly passed away a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. but he gave me a map one time when I was out there and he told me where both Ontario Motor Speedway was located at, as well as where Riverside Speedway Motor Speedway was at, or Riverside, what is it, Riverside Raceway was it, or Riverside International, Inter yeah, Riverside International Speedway, right? I think it was Raceway. Raceway, okay. So he gave me a map of where these tracks were located at, and it was so weird, especially the Ontario one, because, <clears throat> excuse me, Ontario is only a hop, skip, and a jump, literally, from Fontana, uh, where the, you know, the Auto Club Speedway is today, and 
So I went to where the old Ontario Motor Speedway was located at, and Louis said that I wanted to stop. I should stop at this one. Uh, it was a tire store of some type. I can't remember the name of the brand, but it was that area where it was like the start finish line was at. And I parked over there and it was like 630 at night. It was just getting dark and everything. And you're right. You open the window and you just you just kind of get an aura. You sense like that. And that's happened to me there. It happened to me at Riverside when I went out there another time when he gave me the map. And ironically enough, and and I say this with all due respect to Team Hendrick, um, Bull Mountain in outside of Martinsville, I went out there a couple of times uh, in the ensuing years of the big, you know, the sadly the the crash in, in uh, what was it, two thousand and four, I believe it was, um, when the Hendrick Motorsports plane went down in Bull Mountain, and I parked on the road that was literally right next to the mountain. And you just, you get this sense, you get a feeling you, I mean, and I'm, and I've talked to a few other people who've done that at other places. And that same thing, like you're saying, you, you get that sense, you get that feeling. You, you can almost hear the cars in the distance or, you know, with like with bull mountain near Martinsville, you know, you just get that feeling that, you know, 10 really good people perished in this area. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but, but you know, we, we, well, we, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add something um, about the Salisbury Speedway and we could move on here, but there were actually uh, three races held at Salisbury. There's only one cup race or grand national race. The, uh, the inaugural race there at Salisbury was held on September 14th of 1958. And it was a convertible race. Uh, and uh, Bruton Smith signed several top name drivers. It was a hundred mile event. Glenn Fireball Roberts mm-hmm. uh, was uh, won the race. Uh, Bob Welburn, I think, finished second uh, in that one. And then um, others in that car, uh, others in that race, by the way, was uh, it was a 26 car field. Richard Petty was in that convertible race. Roy Tyner, Tiny Lionel Castles, and Marvin Patch were some of the drivers in that one. Um, and then two weeks later was the September 28th race that was won by Lee Petty. Mm-hmm. There was also a race there held, uh, by, uh, Bruton Smith. Ralph Earnhardt was, uh, in that one and he led 40 laps before having engine trouble. Another local driver, Dink Widenhouse, who also, I think had a pretty major car dealership in the Charlotte area. Uh, won that race, Banjo Matthews was uh, from Asheville, and he was second. Mm-hmm. So there was about three different races there. There was a little bit more info here. Um, there was uh, 6,500 people that came to the 1958 race won by Lee Petty. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a pretty big deal that that uh, they had put on, and it seemed to have a great deal of success. As a matter of fact, um, Roberts was quoted as, quoted as saying, it's a f- real fine racetrack. I think it will improve every time we come here. Hmm. Then after that, it just kind of went away. It just, I don't know, uh, you know, because I think of the, uh, of the financial issues that was looming after, you know, all the success, everything was great. Right. Lee Petty takes a checkered flag. It's a one $800, by the way, for that. And then all the glamour and the hype was gone, and but the IRS uh, lien was still hanging over McCandless's head, and it just could not be worked out. There was a lot of money involved in that. And then Bruton, as I said at the beginning, well, we don't need to go into that 
with all those problems, just go somewhere else. And ironically, he chose that area where Charlotte Motor Speedway is built, unknowing that he was getting ready to have a lot of problems with the land. Yeah, right, right, right. Because back in those days, I don't think they really had the technology to do what they do to find out what's under the ground as far as uh, right. you know, the rocks and the, you know, do we build here or not? And then they built and, oh, my Lord, what do we do now? It's going to cost us triple to build this racetrack. But they were so far along into it with their creditors and, and the people they'd borrowed money from, and they couldn't turn around and go back. They had to continue building, and boy, it was a headache and a half trying to get that done. And, and they, they went through the winter of 57, uh, I guess, and then they went into, you know what I mean, uh, uh, 50, what am I trying to say here, 59, I'm, I'm sorry. Right. And then they right. had to open in June of 60s. I misspoke there, but by June of 60 is when things finally took off and it was, it was a real nightmare leading up to it. Well, you know, one thing in, 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 you know, uh, I want to get back on the track about the, the Coca-Cola 600 and its history, but one other thing too, that I wanted to add, <clears throat> we talked about this uh, before the show off the air, you know, everybody talks about Charlotte motor speedway. And obviously there we've talked about the sales and I did it again, Salisbury motor speedway, but there was also a racetrack in Charlotte called, conveniently enough, Charlotte Speedway that was around for uh, about seven years, 1949 to 1956. It hosted 12 NASCAR races. And I, I have not been um, at the, what is it, Charlotte Douglas uh, Airport in probably five, six years. But I do remember... Uh, and Ben had told me off the air that you know, there's been a lot of construction in that area. So they may have taken this area down, but <clears throat> when, um, you know, every time I would fly into Charlotte, you know, for like 15 years before that, uh, there was a part of the old Charlotte Speedway, the wall, the retaining wall, which would be, which lined the roadway, the exit from the airport uh, to go on to Billy Graham Parkway. I always thought it was pretty cool. I mean, I remember the first time I ever flew into Charlotte, which I think was, Oh gosh, probably 2000, maybe, or 2001. And I, that, that, that row or um, a retaining wall always stuck in my head because there was, they had a, a checkered flag painted on it and there was a little sign or well, a, a big enough sign that you could read from, you know, driving that it was from the old Charlotte Speedway. So a lot, a lot of history prior to Charlotte Motor Speedway being built, but let's, let's circle back to where we, we kind of began with this whole thing about, you know, the 600 mile race. Um, you know, it started in 1960, like Ben said, and how, you know, is there a story about how they came to, you know, this 600 mile distance? I mean, why couldn't, why didn't they make, just make it a regular 500, like to, you know, go equal with the, with the Daytona 500 or that? I mean, how did 600 come about? I, I think it's because Bruton just wanted to be a little bit different or a little bit better than the rest, to okay. be honest. I think. Okay. And to set himself apart from the 500 at Daytona, you know, that, that did generate quite a bit of hype having a 2.5 mile speedway, um, there in Daytona in February of 1959. And so he had to do something to generate more headlines. And back in those days, you got to remember that, uh, anything they could do to get something in the newspaper is what they tried to do. And we've talked about this on previous podcasts where, they would stretch out qualifying for days and mm -hmm. days. I mean, mm -hmm. like at the Southern 500, 
all week long, maybe in two weeks prior to the six or to the Southern 500, they would qualify five cars a day. It's like, right, this is, right. this is mind numbing how they would do that. And then they are 10 cars, uh, seven cars. And they had, and sometimes they had 82 car. I think they had 82 cars for the first, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Southern 500 in 1950. Right. Can you imagine, uh, qualifying seven cars a day I mean, for 82 <laughs> cars? Are you nuts? But they did it because they wanted to generate headlines. Well, and were so they generating back, headlines or they generate, but they certainly weren't going to be generating people in the stands though, would they? No, 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 not, not in the stands. But I mean, back in those days, of course, you didn't have the TV coverage. You didn't have social media. You didn't mm-hmm. have all those things. And really the only thing you truly had was the newspaper coverage and the sports pages. And right, so right, right. that that's really all you had. So you wanted to wake up the next morning and say, let me see who qualified today. And mm-hmm. for years, even in the, even into the nineties, you'd have first round qualifying and second round qualifying. And I'm sure you remember some of that. And yep, yep. when we did, they did away with that. But I mean, it was all about in those days, generating headlines. So back to Bruton, he's like, Hey, let's, we got to do something to outdo the Daytona 500. We got to get people into the, into this place because of course, Bruton's uh, SMI or Speedway Motorsports is different from ISC. And so it's two somewhat competing venues. Mm -hmm. And so he wanted to get people in there. And so that's what he did. And, you know, he, that's exactly why the 600 is the 600. He wanted to have the biggest, baddest, longest, most enduring, you got to be there sort of mentality. And that's what it's been from day one. And I've heard people talk about, oh, it's too long and we got to change it. It's like, we're, I'm so tired of people changing the sport. We, <laughs> right. it's a, I mean, it's like, okay, we've got to continue, you know, doing, you know, leave some, some, something there. I mean, you right. Know, right. leave some legacy to it. And uh, so that's why the 600 has been so long. Right. Right. Okay. Now, you know, Ben, the the 600 started out as the World 600 before Coca-Cola took it over and, and got the naming rights. But, you know, the 600 for 62 years has had an incredible list of named drivers who've done very, very well there. And, you know, it is a very, it's the most grueling race on the seat, you know, on the schedule. I mean, yeah, I've been there where that race has gone over five hours and, and there have even been times where it's gone even longer because of rain delays and that kind of yeah. thing. Um, but there have been a number of drivers who've really excelled at that place. Kind of like it made, it, they made that race their race during the height of their careers. Tell me some of the guys that, uh, you know, really did very well at Charlotte, both is when it was known as the world 600. And then when it became the Coca-Cola 600. Well, it, and, and there is a, a rather, I won't say a long list, but there's a list of guys who have done extremely well there. And, you know, recently I had a chance to sit down and talk with Richard Petty about this very thing. And I was honored to to have that chance to do that. And he was telling me, he said, you know, there's some tracks that I've done extremely well at. And there's tracks like Charlotte that I just haven't had that much success at. And the King, he was telling me, you know, as far as the 600 goes, he said, I won it twice. In 1975 and 1977. Mm-hmm. I can't explain why that is. I can't explain why I didn't do better. I can't explain why I only won twice. And there's other guys like, you know, Daryl Waltrip, who's won it six times. And it's, he said, there, you know, you try, you sit back in the recliner and you think, why didn't I win here? But I won all these seven times at, at Daytona. 
Right. And he said, I can't, you know, I've wondered that myself. Why did we, where were we so successful at some tracks and not successful at other tracks. And that Charlotte is a great example of some guys who have excelled so well in the 600 and they feel comfortable driving that length of, of, uh, distance in a race. And there's just some that, you know, they just don't do as well. For instance, uh, take David Pearson for it since 1961, he won for Ray Fox and he won it back in a time when really he was being talked about as a possible superstar, but he hadn't really done all that much and actually won the 600 on, on three wheels. He took the last lap uh, of the race, uh, nursing the Ray Fox uh, car to victory. And he won it again in 1974 for the Wood Brothers and 76 for the Wood Brothers. Then you had uh, Buddy Baker, who was known for winning on super speedways. He only had two short track wins, one at Nashville, one at Martinsville during his career. But everything else that he won was on super speedways. And and his driving style was one of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to win or I'm going to be talking to you in the garage. <laughs> and, and that's pretty much Buddy Baker's style. Yep, yep. So, you know, and he, he was so good in the 600. He won there in 68, 72, 73. Uh, I mean, gosh, you know, you just couldn't stop him. He was so good at Charlotte and that was his home train track. And he took a lot of pride in winning there because he was from Charlotte. Then mm -hmm. he had, uh, you know, you, as I said, Richard Petty twice there, you had Bobby Allison went in there in 71, 70, uh, I'm sorry, 81 and, and 1984. I mean, he loved the place, and he he told me one time, he said, funny story, he said, I remember they crashed on the front stretch, and he said, I remember going down uh, Pitt Road, coming off of turn four at full speed, and I never lifted off the throttle, never. <laughs> like, like, really? He said, yep, I just never lifted. I went right off of turn four, went straight down Pitt Road, and took off into turn one and never lifted. Never oh, took my you. foot off the gas pedal, but that's good old BA. And then, you know, you got people like uh, Benny Parsons won it in 1980 over Darrell Waltrip. And that was a real, I remember that one and being a tooth and nail race. It was one of those days you were talking about how it was a long race anyway, and it kept raining and they dry the track, raining and dry the track, right, thunderstorms. Right, right. And that was a really good race. And Benny ended up winning over Daryl. And Daryl even says, hey, I got to give it to him. That was a, a heck of a fight that the two of us had. Hated to lose it, but I'm glad I lost it to Benny. You know, one of those mm -hmm. deals. Neil Bonnet won in 82 and 83. You know, who can forget Kyle Petty driving the Wood Brothers car in 87, winning uh, the 600 that year. Uh, Dale Earnhardt, 86, 92, and 93. Those were great wins for him. Rusty Wallace, 1990, Davey Allison, 91, uh, you know, so, I mean, there's just so many that, I mean, Jeff Gordon, 94, uh, 97 and 98. And then you got the four, the four wins with Jimmy Johnson, mm -hmm. 2003, 2005, 2000, uh, 2000, I'm sorry, 2003, 2004, 2005 and 2014. Right. So you got those, I mean, some, the point is some guys would just take to that racetrack and just love it to death. And then other guys would say, get me out of here. I, I don't yeah. like it. I can't stand it. You know, and, and they just, some people would have a great feel for it. Other people just didn't, didn't like it at all. And, 
and then you add that extra hundred miles and that's what would really separate you know the the greats from not so greats i guess if you will because they just knew how to handle that racetrack exactly well you know the thing that i find interesting uh ben is that excuse me invariably whenever i mean maybe not so much today because today for whatever reason they the you know the drivers that win today are maybe they're in better shape physically or what have you but you know when daryl would win this race or when richard won the two times or when rusty won i i remember a lot of these um uh the way they exited their race car i mean they were done i mean they were cooked mm-hmm. i mean you know more than any other race you could say daytona talladega you know some of the other longer races but those were nothing compared to the exhaustion that was on the face of these guys i mean they were covered with sweat you know they just they, they were ready to drop and and i'm trying to remember which race it was uh it was probably oh my gosh which there was there was one race and i can't remember it was maybe the mcmurray win if i remember correctly um where the driver just came out and literally just fell to the ground uh, mm-hmm. maybe you know, maybe I'm, i may it may not have been mcmurray it may have been somebody else but i just seem to remember that within the last 15 20 years somebody just got out of the car and literally just almost passed out and then they took them a while to, you know a couple more minutes to get regain their composure get some fluids in them all that kind of thing but you know the, the thing that has always been a uh a precedent i guess of the 600 mile race be it the world 600 or the coca-cola 600 is that you know the 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 big saying is it's the biggest test of man versus machine and that's very true because invariably we've seen a lot of cars over the years in the 600 they you know they they break they throw you know it's not so much tires it's more mechanical you know maybe an engine goes bad or you know suspension goes bad or what have you and i i still like the man versus machine thing more often than not, the man wins, but the machine seems to be catching up periodically, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. So. Well, you know, it's 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 interesting because over the years, uh, let's take it. Uh, I don't know. We can try it this way, decade to decade. Mm-hmm. Let's say, all right, let's, in the '60s, they had nothing. Okay, it was a car, as I've said previously in this podcast, a car off the showroom floor or off the driveway, so it's big, beefed up enough to maybe do 400 laps if you're lucky okay Mm -hmm. 70s these cars had the they would put a little bit bigger steering wheel in them and they designed them that way so they could get them through the turns for that length of time and and not just that racetrack but other other racetracks as well but they would try something called cool suits and these things if you could think about a a fighter pilot who would put these little helmets on these cloth helmet looking things not leather but cloth and the idea was that they would run cold water through them very primitive and they had this little box behind the seat right the idea was they would run cold water through them well 95 percent well not that much 75 percent of the time they wouldn't work they'd either run not work at all or they would run hot water through them and that's just defeats totally defeats the purpose so not only did you have a hot race car, but you had hot water being piped over your head inside your helmet. Right. So they were horrible most of the time. So a lot of drivers either gave up on them or didn't wear them. And so in the 80s, they, you know, they really didn't have too much technology going on in that respect. They try the cool suit stuff, but a lot of times it wouldn't work. Um, 
I guess nineties, the same thing. There just wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of technology. And for the race fans who may not understand, there's no AC in these cars. Yep. Uh, there's no, it's, <laughs> it's really hot. They've tried using, uh, uh, temperature or uh, thermometers just to let you know what how hot they were 120 130 inside the car it's maybe 95 or 100 on the racetrack itself and you got to do that with oh by the way uh, for four hours or more mm-hmm. and you're dressed in a fireproof uniform so you, you try to be hydrated as much as you can. And I've heard Kyle Petty tell me in the eighties that he would lose as much as 14 pounds in this race because he only weighs 14 pounds. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, he would, he would just, he would lose uh, up to 14 pounds in this from sweat. And just right. because he was just trying not to be dehydrated and you would have drivers come out of these things and they go immediately to the care center in some cases and get fluids because it's so hot in these cars. And so They've improved that uh, with cool helmets and cool suits and things like that now. But I mean, it's it was brutal in those days. These cars were thirty seven hundred pound cars. But we're talking about the bigger Dodges and Chevys and Fords and, and as my wife says, the motorhomes of the seventies. <laughs> They're huge cars. And so to put it in perspective, they were really just were had everything going against them. Oh, and by the way, you're going to be racing against 42 other guys at 170 miles an hour, but don't let that worry you. You know, it's just every odd against you, all the odds against you. And that's kind of the way it was. So that's, that's what they were facing going into this race. So you had to admire these guys when they did pull into victory lane or even had a top five finish. It's like, again, the endurance factor that has always been part of the 600 and then the, the, when they started running the, the races at night, it was great for the fans and great for the drivers too, because it was just so, so hot in these races, uh, you know, in the 600, that's what you had to endure as a fan in the stands. You had to doubly endure it as a driver on the racetrack. Well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of turn the table a little bit. Now, in this week's Out of the Groove, um, you know, a website uh, that Eric Stepp puts out, a great, a great job. Um, I, my column, my trading pain column was about the Coca-Cola 600. And there have been a lot of, I, I shouldn't say a lot. There have been some attempts. There has been some talk from, especially my impression is the newer fans, you know, maybe 10 years or less in the sport, or maybe people that have been in the sport as fans for not a long time, but don't get the tradition. I mean, you talk to somebody who's been, you know, following NASCAR for the last 50 years, they're going to say, keep your hands off the Coca-Cola 600. We like the, you know, the tradition of a 600 mile race. You know, it's, it's unique. Uh, no other major racing series hasn't, I mean, well, you can say the, the IMSA 24 hours, the Rolex 24 hours at Daytona, you know, is kind of an endurance race too, but you know, from a, a regular quote-unquote racing standpoint there is no other race that's like the coca-cola 600 and you know like i said there have been newer fans uh younger fans who don't appreciate the length of this race both the miles as well as the time it sometimes takes i mean you can be in the stands for four or five six maybe even six hours and you know if there's rain issues and delays and that kind of thing and my column this week in trading pain and out of the groove was about that. And, you know, 
you and I are both old school. We've been around this sport for a long, long time. I hope to God they never, ever, ever, ever get rid of the Coca-Cola 600. I mean, maybe it might be a different sponsor down the road, but never get rid of the 600-mile race. Your, your thoughts on that, Ben? Well, it was brilliant in Bruton Smith's thinking in June 19th, 1960 to make it 600 miles mm-hmm. because this is why it separates it, it, that day. It did. And throughout the past 61 years, now it would be 62, but uh, it, it's, it separates the race from every other race on earth, really. And it's, it's been that way in the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, 2000s to the present, mm-hmm. that it's a unique race. It's a race that everyone remembers. I mean, even as I said in the uh, intro to this podcast, you simply say the 600. Right. And exactly. everybody knows, yep. everybody knows what you're talking about. And yep. it's, it's, it's very simple. It's very clear. Uh, no, there's no question. What are you talking about? There's no question what you're talking about. And it's been that way from the time that they dropped the first green flag and the first checkered flag over the race. Right. And so I think in the marketing viewpoint in the racing viewpoint and the, uh, just water cooler, if you will, viewpoint, people are going to always say, Hey, what'd you think about the 600? Mm-hmm. what you think about what happened in the 600, you know? And so it it's even separates it from the Indianapolis 500 because it's got its own uh, moniker. It's got its own marking. It's got its own uh, label. And mm-hmm. so I don't think it should ever be changed for, well, for any reason. And, you know, I, I made a, one of the lines I I'm paraphrasing what I wrote, but uh, one of the lines I have in my column this week about this is that, you know, if you're going to make it, you're going to change it from the Coca-Cola 600 or just the 600 to a 500 mile race and make it the Coca-Cola 500 or the Coca-Cola 400. Well, then what's going to stop, you know, and, and, I'm, and I, you know, I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts. NASCAR will never, ever do this. But what, if they were to change a 600, you know, to a, a lesser length race, it becomes just another race and it takes away a lot, you know, it, it loses a lot of its uniqueness and it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's tradition. I mean, and that kind of led me to the, one of the lines I have in my, my column that, okay, well, if they ever do decide to reduce the length of the, the 600 to 500 or 400 miles, well, then what's going to stop NASCAR, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, making it the Daytona 300. You know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm one of the line, another line I mentioned in my, in my column is that, you know, the, the newer fans, the younger fans, while they are excited about NASCAR, um, it, it kind of harkens back to something that Kyle Bush said way back when he first got into the, into the NASCAR cup series, I think it was the second year he was in the series and I interviewed him. Uh, we were down in, I think we were in Fontana, if I remember correctly. And he was talking about how he, had followed his brother Kurt's um, uh, example by becoming a true historian of the, or, you know, history lover of the sport. He really went back and started really researching the old races, much like Dale Earnhardt Jr. became a, a, you know, a big fan of the history of the sport too. And, he, you know, when you talk to guys like Kyle Bush or Dale Earnhardt Jr. or whomever, or Kurt Bush, 
they will tell you about how important it is to have the 600 mile race, you know, be it the, the world 600 or the Coca-Cola 600 or whatever the 600 is down the road here. And that, you know, they, they appreciate that tradition. A lot of new fans don't appreciate the tradition because they haven't been around the sport long enough. I just hope to God that, you know, there is not a movement, you know, down the road, you know, let's say, you know, maybe hopefully not in our lifetime, maybe, you know, once we pass away, I mean, maybe down the road, somebody might try to, to, to change it, but I would love to see the 600 stay the 600 because that'd be like changing the Indianapolis 500 to in the Indianapolis 300. You just yeah. you don't want to do that. Yeah. You know? No. Well, here, here's another interesting fact too, Jerry. And that's, that is that um, on October 16th, 1960, Speedy Thompson uh, won the, uh, the October race at Charlotte. Then it was a 401 mile event. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it remained a 401 mile event until uh, it became a 500 mile race in 1966. Right. And it's remained a 500 mile race in October ever since. So, I mean, if you did uh, move the 600 to a 500, then it confuses things for yep. the October race. So, right. but there was a time it was a 400 mile race until it was upped to a 500 actually is a 501 mile event that year and on october 16th 1966 and it was won by leroy yarborough and he was driving a 1966 dodge so i mean yeah i mean tradition is wonderful and i think that's that's what we should always remain with is tradition and the 600 has been tradition since june 19th 1960 and by the way june 19th uh, of 1949 was the first race June 19th, 1960 was the first race at Charlotte. Uh, June 19th is a big number. And I think one of these days we're going to have to do a a podcast on the June 19th date. There's many things that's happened on June 19th in NASCAR history. And it's just the way it's worked out. It wasn't planned or any of those things and and good and bad things have happened on June 19th. And that's a side story we'll talk about in, in a future podcast, but back to the 600, I just think that, uh, from day one, that track and that number of uh, for the 600 has just been so phenomenal and traditional. Mm-hmm. And and I think fans, especially I can say this from from living in this area all my life, that when it, it, if you walked into a convenience store or a supermarket or a gas station or anywhere, people say, hey, you going to the 600? Yeah. I mean, yep. they don't say the Coca-Cola 600. They don't say the Charlotte 600 or they said, you're going to 600. And, oh yeah, we're going. And it's going to be great. Right. It's just something that everybody knows what you're talking about. And it's, uh, it's been that way as I'm 61. And it's been that way since I became a fan, as everybody knows, 50 years ago, right. but right. it's just, uh, it's a, it's a tradition, a tradition that, uh, I have fine memories of, and, uh, it's a, it's a phenomenal racetrack. And I'm so glad that they got through those first five or six years of turmoil and, difficulties and, and made in Bruton. I tell you what, you got to give it to him because he, he went through some bad times in the beginning, lost control of the speedway, uh, got it back and, mm-hmm. and really built a, a phenomenal racing facility out of it. And he just keeps making it bigger and better, not only for that speedway, but all the speedways under that SMI, uh, umbrella. And he's passed that torch over to Marcus Smith and his people, and they just keep doing everything right. And you got, got to take your hat off to him. Let me ask you this. You mentioned June 19th, and obviously that had a very, it's had a very long history in the sport, but 
when did the 600 get moved to Memorial Day weekend? Because, you know, it, it formed, you know, people always talk about, it. well, it's a great double header. It's the double, you know, in, in Indianapolis 500 in the morning, you've got the Coca-Cola 600 at night. But really, it's technically a triple day because you start with Monaco in the F1 series real early in the morning. And then once you're done with that, a few hours later, we start the Indy 500. Once that's done, a few hours later, we start the Coca-Cola 600. So you can be watching racing for the better part of about 18 hours uh, in the course of a day. But when did they move the 600 to the Memorial Day weekend? Do you, do you remember that? Yeah, well, actually, uh, looking at uh, uh, race and reference here is a great place to, to search this out. Uh, May 21st, 1961, Richard Petty, uh, won the 661 mm-hmm. and then uh wait a minute let me look at something here uh, yeah okay uh it was in may of 61 i think was the first one and then um and then they go uh you know 61 64 it moved around a little bit actually May 27th, 1962, Nelson Stacy won it. Uh, then moved back to June in 63, Fred Lorenzen won it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, May 24th, 1964, Jim Pascal won it. So about, about 1964 is when it pretty much stayed in, in the May time frame of about the third week of May. Uh, and so... Yeah, and I, I I want to correct myself. That's why I hesitate for a second. That was a hundred and one mile race that Richard Petty won. I knew when I said that it wasn't correct. It was he won it in seventy five and seventy seven. I think that was an exhibition race he won in sixty one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I was a little, I wasn't quite right on that. But uh, yeah, to answer your question, uh, May twenty seventh, twenty fifth, twenty second, right in there, and it all pretty well started. Uh, Oh, I'd say uh, maybe maybe with 1962, and Nelson Stacy was the first winner there. He won, he drove a 1962 Ford uh, to win it that year. Exactly, exactly. Final thoughts about you know we've got a couple more things we want to talk about, but final thoughts about um, you know the Coca Cola 600. I mean the, the you know we we've covered everything. I mean the history of it, the endurance part of it. You know the the fact that there there may have been a 600 at salisbury motor speedway <laughs> if, yeah. if it became that way you know if, if they had not built charlotte motor speedway where it was at but any final thoughts about you know as we go and get ready for this weekend's race i mean it's obviously always a big race in fact i just saw an uh, email here yesterday they've sold out the grandstands which is fantastic because you know we've gone through so much the last few years with the covid thing and everything like that and you know similar situation in, in indianapolis i mean that race will not be completely sold out, but it's going to be like 90% sold out too. So any, any final thoughts about, you know, just the history of this race, the ba- the fact we're getting back to the way it used to be, you know, the normalcy, if you will, this weekend, both in Charlotte and in Indianapolis, but any final thoughts that you have? Well, Charlotte is a, is a hub of NASCAR. It always has been. I mean, Spartanburg, South Carolina was, once uh, considered the hub of, of NASCAR and then sort of everything sort of started moving to the north a little bit. Atlanta at one time was a, considered a hub of NASCAR in the very early days. Right. Uh, and, and so with that said, it's just great that uh, like it was then, Charlotte is a track that's always attracted fans. 
to the 600 to the 500 from the very beginning. I remember that first, I don't personally remember it, but remember reading about how the fans were so packed into that Mm -hmm. first uh, 600 because they wanted to see what is this thing all about. And this were in that year, they were only what 11 years into NASCAR history when the, the 1960 Coke uh, world 600 was uh, held then, but people want to see what was going on. And uh, it's Charlotte's always packed them in and it's great that uh, that's what's happening again. So yeah, Charlotte's a great hub for, for NASCAR racing. And I just, you know, it's, it's wonderful that Charlotte's always had great fans and, and here we are. Correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe I'm drawing a bad example of this, but the first 600 and when the track opened in 1960, <clears throat> wasn't that kind of a similar situation to the first race at Darlington where they expected X amount of fans and it wound up being like three times the amount of fans they had anticipated. Wasn't it? I know Darlington was like that when, when um, they opened it, or, you know, that, that was also 1960 also, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Well, uh, Darlington was actually 1950. It was 50, sep- I'm sorry, 50. 50 yeah, really September right. 4th of 50. But in the same case, uh, maybe had a little more infrastructure around Charlotte to get hotel rooms, uh, which I'm sure they did. But now in Darlington's case, they didn't have anywhere for anybody to stay. Right, right, right. But in Charlotte's case, they had more accommodations for people. But yeah, they had they had a pretty well-packed crowd for it. But again, as I said before, no interstate uh, system to to fall back on. So right. Highway 29 was pretty much your only way towards, uh, you know, getting to the racetrack. And it was, I imagine I wasn't there. I was, I was actually born in August of 1960. So I wasn't even born when that first race was held, but I can imagine it was horrific as far as traffic goes yep. because there was, it was a two lane highway getting to the racetrack. And I remember the late Bob Moore who worked for, mm-hmm. uh, the Charlotte news at the time, but he also worked for RG Reynolds in their public relations department said it was a tough day because of trying to get people, uh, into the racetrack and out of the racetrack. And they had a, a hefty crowd wanting to, again, see what was going on about this thing called NASCAR. And it was hot and a long day and, things were not so great at the track because the asphalt and just everything, but he wrote for the Charlotte news Mm -hmm. and boy, it it was a, it was a a tough day. And matter of fact, if I'm not telling this incorrectly, I think Lee Petty, Richard Petty, and a couple of other drivers uh, were trying to avoid some of that messed up um, asphalt that was coming up and they cut some of the track short to get to pit road. And some of those guys got disqualified by NASCAR. Hmm. In that first race, we had to research that. I'm pretty sure I'm 99% sure I'm right, but they, they were trying to avoid the, the problems on the track and they didn't go all the way, uh, across the, the line and cut through the infield to get to pit road <laughs> or that area, you know, where that dog leg is right, right, right. and, uh, NASCAR didn't like that so hot. So they disqualified them. So Great. a lot of story, a lot of storylines in that first race for exactly. sure. Well, we're, we're going to come out of turn four out of Charlotte Motor Speedway, so to speak, and we're going to wrap up to the, today's episode. But we always have, like to talk about two things. We like to talk about the car number that equates with the episode number. So in this case, it's episode 65. So we're going to talk about a car 65 here in a second. 
as well as the first start of the number 65. But Ben, I, I'm, I'm going to steal a little bit of your thunder because you, always, right. give us, you always give us all the, the information about the cars, but this one, I've got to, I've got to interject this one because it's sure. just, this one you just came to mind. We were talking about racing reference.info and it's actually racing dash reference.info. Okay. But, um, this number 65, and again, this is episode 65 of the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. The number 65 is the absolute last car number in racingreference.info's uh, list of cars. And it has started only, let me see here, only 96 starts in the career in the history of the number 65. Num- it's the last one on the list. I mean, you can't get any lower than that. But, you know, we knew... The, the the 65 no wins only one top five which came by chuck meekins in tucson in 1955 and 10 top tens zero poles the last start for the number 65 was 1993 jerry o'neill at charlotte so if anybody out there has got you know maybe a you know, uh, uh, a hot 20 million or so to spend and they want to start their own NASCAR team. Hey, take the number 65. It's been available for almost 30 years and it hasn't been used since then. So, well, you know, I'm sure he went to NASCAR and said, can I have the number 65? I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, you know, and the thing is the, you know, the majority of the drivers that drove that uh, car number, eh, there were drivers, but they weren't, you know, noteworthy, but there were a few names that were noteworthy. They had Charlie Glatzbeck, Buddy Arrington, Buck Baker, and Glenn Jarrett. So, you know, they, hmm. those were primarily one-offs though, but, but tell us about the first start of the number 65 and that that's an interesting one too. Yeah. Okay. No, the first start came on September 17th, 1950, and it came at Langhorn Speedway. A gentleman by the name of Tommy Coates ran the number. And he finished 14th, but crashed. And we don't know where he started because it didn't say, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, good old Tommy Coates, uh, finished fourth. That's not a bad finish for a 200 mile race at Langhorn, Pennsylvania. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, like an exact, you know, if it was after a crash, I mean, so he must've gotten through, I would assume the majority of the race before he, before yeah. he wrecked out. So yeah, but, but number 65, I mean, you know, we have yet, I, I can't think of any other number that we've seen that has gone that long without being in use. So again, if you got another 20 million or so to burn, you got a couple of sponsors you want to bring into the sport. Hey, the 65 is definitely available. So Ben, as always, I, you know, another great show. And in the books here, we go to episode number 66 next week. And I'm sure we're going we're to have a great race in Charlotte as we usually do. Hopefully the weather will, will cooperate. And of course, we got the Indy 500 earlier in the day. And before that, we even have the, the F1 race, which a lot of people are saying could be the last F1 race in Monaco. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that they will come to an agreement and they will continue racing there. But, but uh, great stuff today, talking about the Coca-Cola 600, Coke, the Charlotte Motor Speedway, the Salisbury Motor Speedway. I'm, I'm making sure I'm getting that, getting that one yep. right. So, yep. But we covered a lot of ground. So good show, though. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And that, the idea behind doing the podcast is to give you all we can about NASCAR history. And hopefully we can educate you a little bit on some things we've learned. We don't know everything, but we, we run across some things that we find interesting. We just want to share it with you. So exactly. hope you enjoyed, hope you enjoyed the show. Exactly. And, you know, we, we've had one guest already. We had uh, um, uh, Tom Roberts, former 
PR person for the late Alan Kalicki. We've, we're going to get some more guests on the show. And, you know, talking about the history of the, the uh, Coca-Cola 600, the World 600, the one guy I think we should definitely try to see if we can get, hopefully, in the next few weeks is the former NASCAR historian, Buzz McKim. I mean, oh, yeah. He Buzz was is a good man. He is. And he, I mean, we would probably do a five hour podcast with Buzz. I mean, and, and I mean that in the best of terms because Buzz has just got so many stories. I mean, you know, uh, he and you are both to me like the best historians in the business. I mean, you guys just, you know, you know so much. And I know he's retired now, but I'd be willing to bet that Buzz would just chomp at the bit to, to come on with us. So we're going to try to see. I if think we can it'd be fun. Head. Yeah, I'm not in his league at all. He's, he's <laughs> way, way higher. Yeah, I'm. I'm not anywhere near as good as he is. So exactly. I learned he, he's, he's my hero. He's, right. he's a good man. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, that's going to put a wrap on episode number 65 of a lifetime in NASCAR podcast. He's Ben White from Salisbury, North Carolina. I'm getting it right for the final time for sure. And I'm Jerry Bunkowski from Chicago, Illinois. And, uh, yeah, we don't talk with a twang down here, but that's okay. Or up here, rather. But anyway, but all right. Well, listen, you, uh, Ben, a great show as always. And everyone, we hope you all have a very safe and enjoyable uh, Memorial Day weekend. If you're going to grill or you're going to cook or you're going to, you know, go to, to the relative's house, make sure you you watch the races on TV. You got, like I said, a, a triple header. I think it's the only time we have a triple header on the schedule, if I'm not mistaken, where we have, you know, uh, well, I take it back. There, there are other races, other weekends we've had triple headers, but I mean, no triple header weekend bigger than this one with the F1 race in Monaco, followed by the Indy 500, followed by the Coca-Cola 600, the longest race of the year. And you know, one thing we didn't even talk about, Ben, and maybe we can talk about this next week, is the Coca-Cola 600 has always been the, um, the second part of the double, you know, and we've had several drivers, Tony Stewart, uh, the late John Andretti, R Robbie Gordon, uh, Kurt Busch was the last guy to do their double back in, what was it? 2016. I think it was where they raced in the Indy 500 and then they flew down to Charlotte and raced that evening in the Coca-Cola 600. Um, and I think you're going to still see somebody else try the double here in the next few years. I know Kyle Busch has talked about it. Uh, Robbie Gordon actually, uh, uh, he joked about it on April 1st and, of course, a lot of us fell for it, not realizing it was April Fool's Day that he was going to bring back the Dodge and race in the Coca-Cola 600, and you know he was going to do the double as well too. That didn't, that didn't happen, but um, but again, we can we can, maybe we'll talk about the double next week. You know, kind of like a follow-up to what uh, happened at both Indy and Charlotte. So anyway, Ben, again, great show, and for Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Hope everyone has a great, safe weekend, and we'll catch you next week on episode number 66 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Take care, everyone.
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.